Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The House That Hinky Built. Uh, today I'll be joined by SB Nation's Ricky O'Donnell. Ricky has a podcast uh, that talks about the Bulls. He does a bunch of great draft work. Uh, so the plan today is we'll talk about if there's the potential for the framework of a Zach Levine-Ben Simmons swap, uh, and then also get Ricky's thoughts on kind of what he's seen of Ben Simmons' development, uh, or maybe lack thereof over the years, since Ricky has covered better, you know, kind of watched Ben's development for a number of years. Um, but Ricky is here today, uh, and we're going to get going here. Um, but I appreciate everyone for listening, and we will get started. Hey, Ricky, up, how are you doing today? I'm good, man. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. Uh, enjoyed last night's basketball, um, but uh, getting kind of an, it's, it's kind of shifting in the offseason, obviously, with the Sixers uh, season ending a few days ago. But um, you know, today we are here to talk about the potential or lack thereof uh, of a of Ben Simmons, Zach Levine centric uh, deal. You know, obviously Zach Levine is someone that Sixers fans, you know, and kind of the Sixers have been linked to because of Levine's ability to get to the rim and score kind of at all three levels, especially this year. Um, but kind of bluntly, I'm, I'm curious, do you, do you think there is, is there a foundation for this as a possibility or do you think the fact that the Bulls, you know, traded away their first round pick and acquired another all-star Nikola Vucevic to pair with Zach Levine makes that less likely? How do you feel about maybe even the potential of this deal having any sort of legs beyond just, you know, the, the one for one swap, which I don't think makes sense, but kind of working from there and then progressing? Yeah, I think that if this deal would have been on the table a year ago, that the Bulls would have been really interested in it. And, you know, potentially if that trade would have gone down, let's just say hypothetically a one-for-one swap, Simmons for Levine, I think that Chicago would have got a lot of praise for that. And Mm -hmm. there would have been a lot of people questioning Philly. Now jump forward a year later, Levine took a pretty noticeable jump this past year, obviously made the all-star team for the first time in his career, also named an Olympian, uh, just a really good all-around season for Levine that unfortunately ended on sort of a bummer note with him uh, being held out because of COVID uh, for most of the second half of the season. He also had an ankle injury that Mm -hmm. he sustained just before the team traded for Nikola Vucevic. So in the early days of the Vucevic-Levine pairing, Levine was playing injured, uh, tried to gut it out at the time the Bulls were on a big West Coast road trip. Uh, Levine, I don't think he had missed a game the entire season up to that point and tried to play hurt, uh, was pretty ineffective, sat out for a little bit, and then uh, he was held out for COVID and the Bulls season pretty much ended on contact right there. So while, you know, the second half of the season was certainly a bummer for Levine, it shouldn't overshadow the fact that he made enormous strides this year. I think just as an all-around scorer, his efficiency was absolutely through the roof for the majority of the season. It did fall down a little bit, uh, but he still ended the year at 63 and a half true shooting. I think it was above 65% for most of the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, Improved in some of the areas of his game where he's always been lacking, uh, most notably in playmaking and defensively. Now, Levine is never going to be a defensive stopper, but I think he has at least shed his reputation as a guy who just kills you on that end. I don't think he's really viewed as or should be viewed as one of the worst defensive players in the league anymore because, uh, you know, he steadily improved little by little throughout every year of his career. Uh, on the defensive end and just in terms of his overall game. And he got to a point where, uh, you know, he, he's not going to be targeted relentlessly on the defensive end. And that is a pretty big improvement for a guy uh, who 
at least by reputation, was one of the worst perimeter defenders in the NBA. His playmaking, I think, has always been sort of the the weakest part of his game and what's always sort of held him back, especially in an era of the league that has gone so heliocentric, as we say, where one guy dominates the ball, makes all the decisions. That's not really the best use of Zach Levine, because if you're putting the ball in his hands in a spread pick and roll, in isolation, uh, you just can't really count on him to make a great decision every single time down the floor. Uh, this reared itself this season, even during what was the best year of Levine's career in crunch time mm-hmm. situations. He had several moments in crunch time where, uh, you know, he would rely on his tough shot making ability. He wouldn't be able to read the help uh, coming at him when he had the ball. It sounds eerily similar to, to someone on the, on the Sixers a little bit this year, despite uh, making passing improvements, relying on their they're tough shot making in crunch time and Joel and be there, but, but continue. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So I think, you know, Levine is pretty awesome. He got a lot mm-hmm. better and, you know, just given what happened to Simmons during the playoffs, given the rise of Devin Booker, Donovan Mitchell, let's even throw Trey Young in there, even though he's not a perfect comparison for Zach. Uh, I think that, you know, what you've seen in the league is that, the rules are just more heavily tilted towards offense. Uh, mm-hmm. You see both of the Defensive Player of the Year candidates in Rudy Gobert and Ben Simmons, the top two finishers for that award, both, quite frankly, like embarrass themselves and hurt their value long term in the postseason. Uh, so coming at it, you know, from the Bulls perspective now, I don't see how you could trade Levine for Simmons. I think that that would be a really questionable move for the Bulls. Uh, and you know, if Ben Simmons was to come to Chicago, I think that Levine would be the piece you want to pair him with. Like you would have to be thinking from the Bulls perspective of some framework where, I don't know, maybe you're sending out Vucevic or more future picks. It would have to be a complicated, you know, Mm -hmm. three or four team deal to get that done. So, uh, I think it'd be a great deal for the Sixers. If the Sixers could somehow acquire Zach Levine, I think he'd be terrific to pair with Embiid. Uh, but I don't mm-hmm. see why the Bulls would would say yes to that deal at this point. Yeah, I agree. I, I think the, the biggest issue, too, is is what that Vucevic trade signaled. It was an idea to, to win now, right? It would be it would be very weird. I don't, not even weird. Maybe weird is too nice of a way to put it. It would I, I think it would be ill-advised to, at one point, you know, trade for a, a two-time All-Star, Nikola Vucevic, and in the following offseason, get younger. You know, let's say the Sixers, you know, throw in one or one or both of Tyrese Max and Matisse Thibel, because at this point, I think, you know, Levine, despite only having one year left in his deal, is a is a probably more sought-after player. Um, and just, a, I think, he had a better season than, than Ben Simmons. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's yet to be seen, like, where Zach levels out as a scorer. Um, so I, I can't, I don't want to say outright that he's clearly a better player than, um, than Ben Simmons. I would lean toward that. But point being that I think that it, it would just be a very tough sell from, from the Bulls front office to management, um, or ownership to say, oh, here's one, you know, we want to get, we want to kind of go all in. And then the next moment we're going to, you know, trade for Ben Simmons and Matisse Thibel and, and get young again. So, uh, I agree, especially about the point that Simmons is kind of the guy you'd want to pair with Levine, um, and so it, it it is it's a very tough the framework there. And even what even if there is even any kind of you know standing to it, what makes it tough. Also, is the fact that you know Simmons owed about 150 million over the next four years, um, which averages out to about 37. I think it's 30. I want to say like 37 million on the average, 36.7. Um, over the next four years, whereas Levine has one year left at about nineteen five, if I recall. Um, 
And so then it's like the Sixers, the Bulls have to send out more salary to get the player who probably has less, who is a, maybe a lesser player. Um, so that makes it even more kind of thorny, even if you, tr- if there is even the idea that the Chicago, you know, entertains Daryl Morey's phone call there. Um, so, so I definitely agree, but, um, the contracts are interesting, though, Jackson, because, you know, yesterday Levine gets named to the Olympic team. My first thought is, hell yeah, Zach Levine, let's do some recruiting. Let's get some of these dudes to Chicago. This is what's been going on in the NBA for the last 10 years. It seems like so many of these connections, future free agency hookups, are made on the national team. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the counter to that is, what if Zach Levine gets recruited somewhere else? <laughs> And I have always thought that if the Bulls do offer him a full five-year max, that it would be very difficult for Zach Levine to turn that down. Obviously, you can't get five years from anyone else. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, if the Bulls have another disappointing season, Zach is a guy who wants to win. Uh, I think that he's sick of his reputation as a quote-unquote empty calories scorer, which hopefully he shed this past season. But... Uh, you know, until you do it in the playoffs, I think that that stigma is always going to be with him. Mm-hmm. And then when you see other guards of his caliber, of his ilk, sort of raise their profile in the postseason, I'm sure Zach Levine is like, just get me into the playoffs. And I can do what <laughs> Jamal Murray did in the bubble. I can do what Devin Booker's doing this year. I can do what Trey Young's doing. Mm-hmm. If the Bulls blow it again, and quite frankly, even with Vucevic, the Bulls have a ton of work to do. And I don't think they have many easy solutions for the problems in terms of their roster construction. Uh, it's going to take some significant creativity by Arturis Karnaschovas. Uh, he showed that he has it in him during the trade deadline by acquiring Vucevic, making another deal to get Daniel Tice, to get Troy Brown, send out Daniel Gafford. So I think, you know, who who really knows how that trade has worked out yet for the Bulls. Still kind of up in the air. We'll see what Gafford ultimately becomes. He was very good during his uh, second half stint with the Wizards. But yeah, I do think there there's possibly some concern with the Bulls losing Levine. Mm-hmm. If the Bulls did feel like he was a flight risk, you know, maybe that would be a reason to get Simmons. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing too with Simmons is like, Obviously, his value right now is at its low point, right? Like, we mm-hmm. just yeah. talked about it. If this trade was on the table a year ago, I think it's possible and perhaps even likely the Bulls would have said yes. Or even, even around the All-Star break, honestly. Like, I mean, even when Levine had taken that next step and, and but Ben was playing much better, I think it would have looked more favorably for Chicago. But, I, but general sentiment, I agree for sure, a year ago, no doubt. Yeah. So it's like, you know, from the Sixers' perspective, they're in a tough spot because... They probably feel like they have to do something with the roster. They can't Mm -hmm. really run it back next year. But (laughs) they're also in a spot where if they make a Simmons trade, they're going to lose the trade. Now, just because you, like, quote-unquote, lose the trade on paper doesn't mean that, like, ultimately you will come out worse for the deal. But, Mm -hmm. you know, you're looking around the league and, you know, if we're saying that a Levine deal likely would not be accepted by Chicago, all right, now you're looking at, the other names that have been mentioned, CJ McCollum, like some of these guys, it's like no matter who they trade him for, they're not going to really get value back. So uh, the idea, I think, could be if you hold on to Simmons, he could rehab some of that value. And then in a year or two, if he can, uh, you know, sh- shake what has limited him over the his, you know, multiple postseason struggles, you can flip him for a better player. 
So, Mm -hmm. you know, that could be an incentive for Chicago, too, if they were to do a deal with Simmons. It's like just because you get him and he's under contract doesn't necessarily mean you're married to him forever. Uh, And you could ultimately flip him. But uh, it's, you know, it's a really fascinating hypothetical, I think, for Philadelphia coming into this offseason. And uh, I can't wait to see what they do. But, you know, they're in a good position with Maury, I think, is is probably my main takeaway. You can trust Maury to do something smart both for the yeah. long term and short term interest of the franchise i think yeah especially i mean compared to mo- i mean even most gms but especially compared to the the front office decision makers in the sixers front office after hinky resigned um you know in that contrast and i do want to note here too for anyone listening uh after the fact on the podcast version i am recording this on spotify green room so if i interact with it sounds like i'm interacting with an a non-existent person in a chat or something just make just to uh preface there um and speaking of which you know matthew zeitz says for the people i like your opinion on is it realistic would you like it malcolm brogdon kemba walker deer and fox Lee mccullum um matthew the plan for the next couple of weeks is to kind of bring someone who covers the teams that those that those players are on and kind of talk through um some of the viability there obviously today we're kicking off with levine because he is the best you know uh, i think best maybe semi-realistic target um, Matthew, we'll have plenty of plenty of content on those, but today we're kind of talking Levine and the Bulls side of it. Um, and Ricky, you mentioned the idea of maybe holding on to him because his value is so low. I talked about it on my last on the last podcast, um, the last episode that that I wouldn't be surprised if they do that. I think it's a really tough sell, especially for Joel Embiid to say, "Hey, we're going to hold on to this guy who you know was a pretty big liability in the second round." I'm not saying that you're saying they should do that. Um, but I think it's a tough sell, even if I do think they could, I could see it happen. Um, because part of the argument too is, is this idea that like Ben, Ben is clearly someone who struggles a ton in the second round, uh, and conceivably beyond if the Sixers reach that point as long as he's in town sometime. Um, but he's been really, really good in the first round of each of his playoff appearances. Now it helps that he's been a higher seed each time, but I think for a team that has lesser aspirations, there's a little more appeal and a little less emphasis on Ben's struggles beyond the first round. Now, again, it would change if you're a, if you're a lower seed and you are the six or seven seed, and Ben is going up against one of those two or three seeds that you know has given him issues over his last couple over his last three seasons. But I think there is maybe a little more appeal for a team like that um, to acquire him. Um, but again, the the issue, and I, I talked about this in the last episode, the issue for for Ben and the Sixers, I guess not Ben so much, but for the Sixers, the fact that they're not trying to unload Ben. They're not, oh, we need to get rid of him. Like, they're not trying to unload his contract. He doesn't make sense on the team because of how much he hinders their ceiling in the playoffs, and he so happens to make a lot of money. You no, know, it's not like they're trying to dump salary so much as they're trying to find a better up. They're trying to upgrade the fit around Joel Embiid, but the guy who is kind of standing in their way happens to make a ton of money, which just complicates things. Um, which again is, a, is different than just trying to get off of the guy's salary. It's not what they're trying to do with Ben um, so much. But yeah, I think on the Sixers side, it's it's you talk about maybe worrying about Zach Levine getting frustrated and and maybe kind of wanting to get out with the Sixers. I'm not I'm not saying this is not source. I'm not saying this is the case at all. But you run the risk if you do maybe bring back Ben and try to pitch you on the idea of him recouping value over the first half of the year that Joel gets frustrated. I'm not, I'm not saying Joel is going to run out of town like that, but um, I mean, he's, he hasn't made it past the second round and he deserves some responsibility. He's far down the list of reasons Sixers have not made it out of the second round during his tenure. Um, but you do run that risk of like, if you, you like, he just watched, I mean, he just watched 
Ben struggled mightily while he played on you know a torn meniscus and was pretty dang good for the most part. Uh, and it, it feels to me like a hard sell if I'm hearing, oh yeah, we're going to try and recoup his value and you're going to play with him for another half of the season. Um, because to an extent, that's it's not wasting the season, but like what good is it for the team's championship aspirations if the idea is that you're just going to play with this guy for half the season and then unload him? Um, and if you can't unload him, then you roll back into the postseason and you kind of know what happens beyond the first round, barring some significant improvements offensively from Ben. Yeah. So if they are going to keep him, I mean, my two cents would be that they have to trade Tobias. And if you're talking about a McCollum deal potentially being on the table, like if I'm the Sixers, I'd feel a lot more comfortable trading Tobias for CJ. I don't know how you feel about that. But I think getting some other shot-making guards in there probably would be good for him. I think the Sixers, they were pretty heavily reliant on getting good Shake Milton games. And I think that that's just like not really the type of variance you want to bet on, especially when you're competing at the highest levels of the league. Uh, so I don't know. How do you feel about potentially keeping Ben but flipping Tobias? Yeah, I, I think I think that makes sense as well. I, I do think it's tough again because of kind of you know the way that the disparity between Tobias with Doc Rivers at the helm versus Tobias without Doc Rivers at the helm. Um, but the issue for the Sixers there is, and I, I mean, I don't want to get into a huge Doc thing again because I talked about it in the last podcast. But the issue is is kind of how much Doc struggled there. So like, how do you balance that? Uh, but I agree because I think there are a lot of similarities between CJ and Tobias as players. You know, they're both kind of that mid-range heavy guy. Obviously, to, or CJ took a lot more threes this year. Um, you know, the mid-range heavy guys, they don't get to the rim. They don't really draw fouls. And so I don't know how much better your, how much your ceiling is raised if you get kind of the the guard version of Tobias. Now, that's not to say that either one is a bad player. They're both very good players and both have really developed into very talented scorers. Um, but I think the team looks a lot more appealing offensively if you have a starting lineup of Seth Curry, CJ McCollum, Ben Simmons, Danny Green, if they resign they have his early bird rights, and then Joel Embiid versus the opposite where you know Tobias is in place of CJ. I think you have a lot of redundancy there. So I agree, but I don't, I don't know how much utility Tobias has on the trade market given his contract as well. But um, I definitely agree that even if CJ could help the team, I think there's a good bit of offensive redundancy between him and him and Tobias that um, probably wouldn't take you to the next to the step you would like to get. Um, but even then, I think for Portland's sake, I think they should certainly like for Portland. You know what's what is the allure of a again? I'm not trying to just like you know be reductive uh, and just say that Tobias and CJ are the same player. But what is the allure of kind of basically a six nine Tobias? You know, or six nine CJ McCollum? Like how does that entice? How does that make Dame more optimistic about their chances? Whereas I think, like, Ben Simmons, you're in a pretty good, like, I, I wrote about it in, in my piece for Dime Up Rocks the other day, but, like, the there's there are very certain and specific kind of players and archetypes you need to maximize Ben Simmons. And if the Blazers re-sign Norm Powell and trade for trade CJ for Ben, you're looking, you're looking at a pretty, like, not quite optimized, but you're looking at the lead pull-up shooter. You're looking at the the other secondary handler in, in Norm Powell. You're looking at a floor space in Robert Covington. And then Nurkic isn't quite the stretch five, but you can kind of play him on the perimeter a little more because he's shown a willingness to shoot some threes, and he has a pretty nice kind of passing game from the elbows and whatnot. So I think it. I agree that that like it that the, the Sixers should be targeting trading Tobias if possible. Um, but I, I I don't know if like I don't know if Portland is really intrigued by that, especially with how much Simmons could help them given Portland's glaring deficiencies defensively this year. 
Um, and I apologize for anyone listening. There is there's a lawnmower outside my apartment right now that is uh, running. But um, I definitely I definitely agree with your idea. But I think in practice it is it is tough to apply, especially if the idea is to get CJ McCollum back. I don't know how enticing it is for for Portland side of things. For sure, like I would say that if I'm Portland, I'm doing everything in my power to get Ben Simmons this off season. Like Portland should go all in on Simmons. His value is low. You've already seen the Dame-CJ pairing, whatever, in the playoffs. Flame out so many times. They got a conference finals run out of it, which is nothing to be ashamed of. Like, they they have had some pretty high highs, I think, with that pairing. But, uh, yeah, try to go get Ben Simmons. That would be amazing for Portland. From the Tobias perspective, if they were to do a CJ for Tobias split, here's a shocker, man. CJ is older than Tobias. (laughs) <laughs> Which I wouldn't, I did not realize that, but CJ obviously was a four year player at Lehigh. He's 30 or he's about to turn 30, and Tobias is a year younger. Uh, I remember, you know, writing about the league in 2013, 2014. It was like, Tobias Harris, still only 21. He hasn't showed it yet, but he's got some tools, he's got some potential. <laughs> so it's crazy how long, you know, how established Tobias is at this point while still being pretty young. Uh, I think Tobias better defensive player than CJ. I mean, he's just bigger. So uh, he can, you know, if Portland wanted to re-sign Powell, have Powell play the two, try to get a, you know, another three and D wing type. Uh, I don't really know what happens with Covington in this situation. Is Covington included in the trade or not? But just to have Harris at the four, just to give you like a little different look than what they've had, like another pick and pop partner, for Dame, someone who you could involve in more two-man games. I think it could be interesting for Portland, but certainly if I'm the Blazers, I'm uh, I'm targeting Ben Simmons, no doubt about it. Of course, this is supposed to be the Zach Levine episode of <laughs> your Grimm, so we should probably stop talking about the Blazers. But uh, yeah, it just, it just speaks to how difficult it's going to be to make a Simmons trade. And as I've been thinking about this, you know, the best bet might be some like totally wild four team trade or something to get Simmons out of it. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. because in a one-to-one trade, it's going to be, I think it's going to be really hard for the Sixers to get a decent package that they're happy with. Uh, I would not be surprised if we, I don't want to say I wouldn't be surprised, but I do think that like, there could be the potential for a mega deal where Gobert changes teams, Porzingis changes teams, Simmons changes teams. And then I don't know like who the fourth team in that trade is. Uh, obviously, you got a lot of bigs there, so uh, you know that's that's an issue because Philadelphia would want a guard back or a wing back. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just talking about the viability of a Simmons trade, like it would probably behoove Maury to get really creative and to see how many other teams you could rope in on this. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And as as we said earlier, it, it helps to have Daryl Maury kind of controlling these decisions on the Sixers end, end of things. Um, but, but yeah, I think it's, it's interesting because, uh, because, because with Ben, you know, people like I've, I know, like I've seen a couple of some trades that are, that like, just give the Sixers a bunch of role players. like, Oh, like give them shooters, maybe like kind of a ball handler. Um, but, but the issue is like, you need the, the talent deficit can't get to the point where the Sixers are back to a first round exit because as I said, Ben, like the Sixers with Ben are going to be a top three to four seed. You know, again, the East will probably be better next year with, you know, maybe kind of teams feeling, you know, just having less less suboptimal circumstances given everything that happened this year. 
um, with, whether it was the injuries in the season or kind of all these COVID-related absences. Um, but the Sixers should be confident in, the, in their ability to be a top three to four seed with Ben every year. And the fact of the matter is, Ben has been really good in the first round, as I said. So there's not it doesn't make sense for the Sixers to lower their team's talent so significantly uh, to the point that they're not a first they're not a, they're a first round exit. Like that doesn't make sense because they can still get to the second round every year with them, which is not their goal by any means. And it shouldn't be their goal with Joel Embiid playing like he did this season. Um, but they shouldn't just trade it for role players like a pick or two to the point of oh now they're like the five or the six seed and they're losing the first round because it's like they could just make the second round every year with Ben for five or six more years and Joel, maybe not five or six years, but like two or three more years or whatnot. So, um, yeah, I think getting kind of creative is going to be important here. Um, but I just want to note that, that I've seen some of those trades going around where it's like the Sixers, lose a, they, they they take a big hit in the talent department, and then it's like, are they even more than a, kind of a first round out? So, um, But, yeah, the point about Tobias is, I mean, he's been in the league 10 years now, which is wild. He's been on five teams, if I recall right. Yeah, Milwaukee, Orlando, Detroit, uh, the Clippers, and the Sixers. Uh, so five teams in 10 years. Obviously, it's, it was like five and seven before he was, uh, you know, before he found a little bit of a home here in Philly. Um, but, yeah, just reading some of the comments here. Um, you know, Noah says, a lot of Spurs, Spurs fans think they should make a run at Simmons. Personally, I don't know what they could offer the Sixers to entice them. And is San Antonio the worst possible destination for Ben with the complete lack of shooting? Uh, again, not to defer all of these questions, but I do want to do kind of a lot of these lot, these green room streams and also the House the Hinky Built podcast episodes revolving around different possible landing spots for Ben because I think that's a pretty hot button topic. So um, I'll be sure to kind of hit on a lot of these different potential trade suitors, but I do want to focus on most of the bull side of things, um, but also kind of get Ricky's perspective on Ben's development, given the fact that Ricky has a history in the draft and watching lower level prospects and whatnot, or prospects at lower levels, I should say. Um, and so is there anything that you want to add about kind of the Levine framework or the lack thereof or things that kind of, you know, on that side of things, or should we shift maybe into your perspective of how, Ben has progressed throughout his career since maybe the first year you started watching him many, many years ago. Yeah, I guess, you know, just sort of coming full circle on your thought about the talent deficit. I totally agree with that. You know, hypothetically, if the Bulls would have offered the Sixers the same package they traded for Vucevic, for Simmons, I mean, I would have loved that. Like, I like Vucevic. Vucevic is awesome. Uh, He's also 30. And I think that, you know, just Simmons being, what is he, 24 still? He'll, mm-hmm. I think he'll be 25 this offseason. Uh, you know, would that package have enticed the Sixers at all? Being, you know, it's the number eight pick this year, a top four protected pick in 2023, Wendell Carter. Uh, now, I don't think that really would have because the Sixers are trying to optimize a relatively small window where Joel Embiid's one of the best players in the world. Sixers got to do everything they can to win right now. Now you could take those picks and flip them for something else. And I do think there's going to be a decent amount of established NBA veterans on the table this year. But uh, given the move the Bulls made for Vucevic and given the leap Levine took, I don't really see that being a starter for the Bulls. Like I, I don't really think that they would entertain a Simmons Levine swap or that there's really anything Philly could even add like Seth Curry or future picks or Thibel or shit or, you know, Maxi or whatever, where it would make sense. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Maxi and Simmons for Levine. Maybe that's interesting. It depends how high you are on Tyrese's future. 
mm-hmm. wonder if there's Philly fans who would be hesitant to do that because I'm sure Maxi is uh, sort of the flavor of the week, the way that young guys tend to be. <laughs> there will certainly be six, many Sixers fans who are uh, reluctant to that. Uh, and understandably so. I mean, it depends on what you how you view fandom. He is clearly beloved there. But sorry to cut you off, but I did want to confirm your, your belief that there would certainly be some hesitancy from the Sixers uh, fan side of things. Yeah, like maybe that would entice the Bulls. Maybe thrown Thibault, Thibault, Maxi Simmons for Levine. I mean, that's basically what you're talking about just to get a conversation started. And ultimately, I, I just don't think a Levine for Simmons deal with that as the main framework is going to be on the table. Just yeah, like- yeah, I, I agree. And I think like I think that is it would be worthwhile for the six per side of things. I'm like, I, I think Maxi can be very good. Like I was, I was high on him as a prospect, but I was really, really impressed with the way he developed throughout. The- regular season the way he was able to give some big minutes at times in the playoffs um you know Matisse destroyed a little bit uh defensively compared to the regular season but obviously is an incredible defender um but I think it's worthwhile given kind of how much of an upgrade offensively Zach Levine is fit wise with with Joel um and then I think you know even if yes you're giving up a big defensive trade-off I think you should be pretty confident in your ability to field a very good defense around Joel Embiid um that's kind of my, my take on these things it's obviously yes you're Regardless of who you trade Ben Simmons for, if you trade him, you're going to have a defensive drop-off because Ben is arguably, if not the best perimeter defender in the NBA these days. Um, but you should feel confident in, in, in what Joel has done pretty, pretty much in every playoff run. You should feel confident that you're going to be a pretty formidable defense there. Um, but again, the issue comes back to then you, that's what, like four, four or five million more, more dollars, you know, going out to, to the Bulls. Um, and then you got to find more money. And I think, I mean, like the, I guess kind of the, the obvious one would be Thad Young. And I guess if the Bulls are going young, um, I guess not, not, to, not for, you know, uh, no pun intended there, excuse me, but, um, that makes sense for the Sixers because you give them another quality player uh, and someone who makes a lot of salary. And so that would kind of bridge the gap there. But, uh, I agree in, in general that it is a pretty tough, you know, framework to establish given the disparity and given kind of the fact that Levine is a more sought after player, whereas Simmons has a much bigger contract, um, both in, you know, year to year salary and years on the deal itself. Um, but I do kind of want to shift gears a little bit. So you, you've, I mean, you're someone who covers the draft. You, you've done some stuff, you know, kind of watching, you know, guys in high school and whatnot. So when did you first kind of start watching Ben in depth? What was kind of the process there? What did you, what were your first impressions of him? And then we'll kind of get into his progression to where he is now and finish up his fourth year in the NBA. Yeah, I think I wrote something at SB Nation in either 2013 or 2014. Nah, it was, I mean, it was a long time ago, 2013 or 2014, about how Australia could be a powerhouse moving forward with Ben Simmons and potentially Thon Maker and Dante <laughs> Exum leading the revolution of Australian basketball. And, well, that didn't really materialize. Too bad for my Dante Exum hot takes, <laughs> 2014 or whatever the hell it was. Uh, but he's been on the radar for a long time. And at the very start of his sort of, uh, you know, him bubbling up to the surface as a prospect. He was getting so many LeBron comps, and of course, that's totally ridiculous, but just like the size and the speed and the ball handling and the passing, it was really intriguing uh, from early mm-hmm. on. But I didn't see him in the EYBL. I believe he played for Each One Teach One, which was, uh, you know, a Florida-based program. I don't know if it's still around. The The, the names tend to change. I, I don't think that that program is still name that uh but then he goes to Montverde and or Montverde and he was terrific there 
uh, Salini Team with D'Angelo Russell, right? So he's been on the radar for a long time. The first time I saw him in person was at the McDonald's All-American practices. And the McDonald's All-American game was held in Chicago for a long time in the previous decade. It's moved out of the city now, which is a huge bummer because it was always one of my favorite events to go cover. And I remember watching him in that class. The first thing that jumped out was just like the size. And I don't know what Simmons is like standing reach measurements or anything are off the top of my head. But, uh, you know, it was easy to see even back then that like this guy could potentially be playing some center for you long term. Mm -hmm. Now that hasn't developed. And, you know, you would think Philly would have been a perfect spot for it to happen, right? Like, have Simmons play the center minutes when Embiid's on the bench. I'm sure you've talked about this, and the Sixers fans have discussed this uh, ad nauseum. But instead, you know, the Sixers got a lot of Dwight Howard, and they got uh, (laughs) basically anything they could do to keep Ben off of center. So, uh, you know, when he went into LSU, I think it was clear that he didn't really care that much. And he was very public about... uh, you know, the fact that he thought that NCAA system was uh, exploiting athletes, certainly stuff we all agree with. Uh, his godfather, I believe, was an assistant coach on LSU, and that's mm-hmm. why he was LSU. I believe, yeah, I believe that's the, the connection. There was some familial connection, for sure, that would was a heavy influence in why he went to LSU for, for a season. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, I wrote a lot about that team. I mean, you had Antonio Blakeney. You had a guy named Craig Victor, I believe, who was an undersized power forward. How about Tim Quarterman? Do any you were probably in seventh grade when this was going? <laughs> no, I, I, there, I remember that team was super talented, right? They had a few a few guys that had at least a cup of coffee in the NBA. I know Quarterman and and uh, and Blake. You obviously played for your Bulls for for a year or two, but um, I am I guess kind of the, the thing I am curious about is when you first kind of knew of him when he entered kind of the the national scene or to kind of the the public eye, what? what were the thoughts about his kind of optimal position and, and were, were there any concerns about the shooting? Where was he at there? Like kind of just, because now obviously there's a lot, you know, he's played a lot of point guard in the NBA, primary ball handler and whatnot, but where, where was that kind of idea of him back then? And then where was the shooting at when you first saw him and maybe the next couple of years as you watched him develop? For sure. I think like when he first came in, he was viewed as a small forward and Mm -hmm. you got to realize that like just the way we thought about basketball in 2013 or whatever is different than the way you think about it now. So I think that he was like a ball handling wing who was best in transition, who had struggles shooting. Right. And then when he was at LSU, a big knock on him was that he wasn't a very good defensive player and that he just didn't look engaged on that end. And really uh, the fact that Simmons turned into the best perimeter defender in the league, a top two finisher and defensive player of the year. He'll probably win the award at some point in his career, I would guess. Uh, it's a pretty big testament to his development on that end. So I'm sure that, like, there's this idea that Simmons doesn't work on his game, that he, you know, he's too prideful to, uh, you know, address his shortcomings head on. And I do think there's some truth to that, but defensively, he's made tremendous gains, uh, which I don't think can be overlooked. And then offensively, uh, you know, I think that he was someone from an early age who it's like, well, he has the size, he has the speed, he has the ball handling. Let's see what can happen to the shooting. And I don't remember him being talked about in terms of like, this guy's one of the worst shooters to enter the league, or mm-hmm. the worst shooter to enter the league as a non-center prospect over the last 10 or 20 years. I think that, uh, you know, 
there was some optimism about the thought of him at least hitting mid-range shots or like developing a post game or, uh, you know, we didn't think he'd be shooting 30% from the foul line in high leverage situations. So mm-hmm. I think that, you know, there was just when, especially when a player is that young, uh, you just want like a solid foundation for which their skills can continue to grow. And to move this back to Le- Zach Levine, I mean, Levine, had some tools, right? Like, obviously, he was super athletic coming out of UCLA. He could hit shots off the dribble. uh, And, you know, you had the rough framework of, like, potentially what he could grow into down the line. And uh, it's a testament to Levine that he kept getting better both at his strengths as a shooter, as a rim attacker, and then at the areas of this game where he was weaker in terms of his defense and his playmaking. And he did that despite tearing his ACL and missing Mm -hmm. a large chunk of his most important developmental seasons. I think with Simmons, obviously he had the injury early in his career as well, where he missed his entire rookie season. Uh, But you just haven't seen the offensive development from him. Uh, And, you know, I, I think I saw a quote from Ben after the Sixers were eliminated where he said, you know, I just want to get my mind right first. And then we'll take it from there. I love that quote from him. I think that, you know, that's absolutely the right approach. Hopefully Simmons is in a good space mentally because, uh, you know, for such a prideful player, it's got to be so tough to just see not only the fan base turn on you, but just like, how could you even like look at the internet, look at social media, look at your Instagram direct messages, whatever it is. It's got to be really tough for Simmons. So uh, it does remind me a little bit of Lowry marketing uh, in, a, in a rough sense where it's like marketing also entered the league really promising uh, with a really promising foundation of tools and skills. But, you know, marketing just never really improved as a player mm-hmm. from his rookie year. And I think offensively, Simmons hasn't really totally improved yet. Now, mm-hmm. it can still happen. He's still young. He has improved on the defensive end, which he deserves a lot of credit for. But I think from an early age, what you saw in Simmons was a player who had obvious physical gifts, uh, had some shortcomings in his skill set, and you wanted to see him develop those. And, you know, he did develop them defensively. There were major questions about him defensively, about his mindset, about all that. And, uh, you know, he's improved in some areas, but offensively stagnated. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to hear about, you know, kind of the defensive side of things because, you know, I know that people always talk about, oh, like he didn't really apply himself at LSU and whatnot on the defensive end. It was a little bit before I really you know, watched basketball in depth beyond just, you know, games on TV or whatever I'm hanging out with, with friends or family I'm watching. Um, so I never really know kind of, you know, and I never took the time to, you know, confirm or deny those narratives by, with my own, my own watchful eye, but it's, it's cool. It's interesting to hear that he's taking big strides there, but yeah, the way I kind of view this, this stuff for Ben is, is his struggles are, are largely self-inflicted, but it doesn't mean I don't, I don't sympathize with him. Like I, I for his sake, I, I can't, as you said, I, I can't imagine it's easy and I hope he figures it out. Um, but at the same time, it's kind of from an objective standpoint, it, he, he does have a lot of ways he could improve on his own that aren't, you know, yes, of course, it would be nice if he, if he's able to play with a lead ball handler who had, you know, great pull-up shooting and kind of facilitating, but, um, that's how, you know, so I, I, I sympathize with him, but I, but I recognize at the same time from an analysis perspective that, um, he is kind of leaving a lot on the table offensively, but it, but again, it is interesting to hear that, you know, uh, He's grown a lot defensively. I know, like I know that he has in the NBA, but it's interesting here before he reached the NBA, where he was kind of out there. Because I mean, you compare him to a guy like Cade Cunningham again. He's not. Cade, I mean, Cade is a different level of shooter, of course, and player. Um, but Cade has been a tremendous defender since. I mean, forever, not forever, but I mean, for many years. And um, whereas Ben obviously had to grow into that. So um, 
but speaking of kind of the, the post and the mid range game, because I've seen some clips, you know, circ- circulating whether it was LSU or in summer league before his before his rookie year, before his before he missed a, a season, um, and he was shooting some mid range and whatnot. So was would he take some mid range pull ups kind of at lower levels and whatnot, or was it just the fa- like was it one of those things where he was so big and strong and fast that he could kind of always create a transition opportunity for himself, where he's obviously still great. Um, so he didn't do that much and was something that became a little more prevalent, uh, in summer league and LSU, or did he, did he experiment with some post-ups and some, you know, some pick and roll stuff as a, as a screener and shoot mid-range bulbs? Where was he at kind of offensively in those regards? Yeah. Now the transition was always the bread and butter of his game from an early age. And uh, if you go back and watch, I'm sure, you know, a ball is life mixtape or whatever of Simmons, which is of course not the best representation of him as a player or of any player just to you know, just to view them through that lens. But uh, it was mostly open floor stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Creativity in the open floor, the ability to hit shooters while, uh, you know, dribbling on the break. He was, Simmons was really the first guy I can remember who the phrase grab and go was used mm-hmm. with as a rebound. Like, I don't really remember someone, no one ever said Anthony Bennett is a grab and go <laughs> rebounder from, you know, I think he was two years before Simmons was drafted, both similar positions. Uh approximately the same size sort of i guess obviously totally different players bennett flamed out but uh so that was mostly the the bread and butter of simmons's game i do think that you know from going back to those early days that yeah he was definitely expected to be able to hit mid-range shots uh and be able to have some semblance of post moves but you know at the high school level even when you're playing at a basketball factory like montverde uh his talent level was just still so much higher and really like the best high school players from an early age probably can compete in the NBA. It sounds crazy, but uh, you know, I mean, LeBron was basically averaging what 20 points a game as a, you know, his first year out of high school. Like could he have done that as a high school junior potentially? Like Simmons is one of the guys who I think mm-hmm. could have competed in the NBA from an early age, just based off of his physicality. Uh and yeah, I from what I remember that he did have a little bit more diverse of a scoring package. I mean, uh, it, it's tough for me to go back and remember now, but my recollection of it is that he was always considered a rough three-point shooter, but he was never considered a total non-scorer. Mm-hmm. And at least in my estimation of this, like, sometimes the easiest thing really is the answer when you're looking at, you know, prospect development and stuff like that. And I just think if Simmons could shoot free throws, it would really change the whole calculus for him. And he was a 61% free throw shooter this year, I think, mm-hmm. which people are going to overlook because he shot 32% in the postseason. But, uh, you know, if he could just be a 68% free throw shooter, a 70% free throw shooter, and just have that be reliable even as you go into the playoffs, I think it would make his rim attacking, you know, so much more valuable. I think it would really change everything for him uh, because, you know, you could see just in that one play where he passed up the dunk, uh, dished it to Tobias, I think it was. Matisse, it was Matisse. On a little Matisse. So, and, uh, yeah, like that was born out of the fact that he didn't want to take free throws, most mm-hmm. likely, I think. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because you mentioned kind of the 68 to 70 range, and he he was on a really good trajectory midway through the year. I think he got up to like 67% at one point this year, and then, you know, he struggled in the second half of the year, and then obviously the bottom fell out in the playoffs. But, um, yeah, and and that's the thing. I had a thread about it earlier, you know, when, when he was getting hacked, like before... Before the free throw string really hit a hit a crescendo, 
in the second round when he was maybe like four for 13 or three for 13 or something. Uh, and when Scott Brooks was hacking him, I, I had a, you know, a thread about kind of the idea of hacking guys. And it's like 61%. Yes. It's bad compared to other free throw shooters, but like free throws are like the most like efficient form of offense. Like, 61% is 1.22 points per possession, which is 122 points per 100. Per 100. Like, that's good offense. But I but I agree that, like, yes, I'm not, like, yes, it's not, like, he, it's probably, like, not, he doesn't enjoy going to the free throw line and kind of maybe expecting to hit one out of two more or less. But but I agree that that would change a lot of things. And I like, I don't ever want to project, and I'm not saying you are. They're like, I don't want to project, oh, he doesn't like going to the free throw line. But, I mean, he definitely has a certain level of contact aversion in his game, and I don't, maybe that stems from the free throw line, but it is prevalent in his game, and that definitely affects his ability to be a good post-scorer, a half-court driver. Um, and while we're kind of on the topic of Ben as an offensive player, um, for anyone listening, whether it's the podcast version or right now, I'd recommend people go, um, if they have a Twitter, go check out Polar Fall. Um, one, give him a follow. He's great with biomechanics, but he has a thread from June 8th about kind of Ben's... Ben's Ben's strengths offensively, kind of his biomechanical tendencies. Um, it's from June eighth. Uh, I would just—it's probably ten or twelve tweets down his profile. Lord doesn't tweet a ton, um, so it should be pretty accessible. And I would go go check that out for a more in-depth kind of explanation of his his things, kind of Ben's tendencies there, because I think it's really fascinating. I don't want to just read it myself and kind of you know steal it, but I would recommend go checking that out if you have an access access to Twitter. Um, or Twitter account or whatever. It's Polar Fall at P O L A R F A L L. Um, Polar's brilliant. Would definitely recommend. That's great insight there on kind of Ben's tendencies. Um, but that's. But yeah, I think yeah, the free throws would help a ton. But it's just interesting watching some old film, like like the like he was confidently shooting mid range jumpers and, and whatnot. And he doesn't he doesn't do that anymore. And so um, you know, I don't know. Like I mean, I'm again, I'm I'm just seeing these in the highlight clips. So you, I mean, you never know what the, like what the actual numbers are on those things, but. Um, just, you know, anecdotally, there was a lot more aggression and, and confidence there. And it seemed like there was a, at least a foundation of, you know, uh, ability to hit from the mid range, because I mean, he's huge. Like, I mean, he's the way he's 6'10", 6'11". He's going to be able to get to, you know, right inside the free throw line or, or less most of the time. So if we had a, a mid range game that was, you know, 45 to 48%, and maybe not even that high. I mean, that's, again, that's a pretty lofty standard, but just something beyond kind of the, the finish at the rim, it would really do a lot for him. So, um, that's that's a really interesting kind of just perspective about kind of his offense development. And that's that's kind of the sense I got from just maybe reading some stuff throughout the years and and having some sort of you know idea of who he was as a player when I was you know when I was a little younger. Um, but yeah, de- I mean, definitely has clearly kind of devolved kind of his offensive game and you know largely being a transition creator and someone who lives at the rim in the half court. Um, but it's funny because I remember I remember there's a so I'm from I'm from Portland, uh, and there's a big tournament over the Christmas, kind of the winter break called the Les Schwab Invite, and Montverde's come a few times. And I remember he he took he played my high school. I didn't play I didn't play uh, high school basketball uh, or, or varsity basketball, but he played my high school one year in that tournament. When I think he was either junior or senior, um, and he had one play where he 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 was like at the free throw line. He he up faked the defender bit, and he like threw the ball off the backboard and like dunked on some other teammate. Or not teammates, excuse me, someone that I went to high school with. Uh, but just watching him back then, it's it's like I mean, obviously again, my my level of basketball expert, not expertise, my level of basketball analysis is much more you know advanced. But it's just wild to think about kind of that player and how dominant he looked. Again, totally different setting, totally different caliber opponent. But like to think now that we're at a point where he he goes games where he doesn't even shoot in the fourth quarter and things like that, uh, it's just a very stark transition. Again, I'm sure like most of the players on those court on that court in that game didn't even reach this point 
uh, where Ben has gotten, but it's just such an interesting thing because he was such a marvel back then, uh, as you've kind of noted too. But um, but yeah, anything you want to add about kind of his development or lack thereof over the over these years uh, offensively, kind of what you've what you've seen and what you made of make of kind of where he was when you first watched him you know, seven or eight years ago uh, to the point where he, he is currently. Yeah, you know, I kind of roll my eyes sometimes when guys talk about like just confidence, but. Uh, like I interviewed Josh Giddy on FaceTime a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to do a feature on him. And all he was talking about was his level of confidence and that, you know, he was able to take off as a player after a rough start uh, in the NBL because he started getting confidence. And when you, you know, think about that Simmons play, it's sort of similar to Trey Young throwing the alley-oop off the backboard last night to Collins. Uh, you'll see it with John Morant does stuff like that too. It's just like you have to have a level of belief in yourself that you are just the baddest MFR on the court at all times to try to pull off something like that. And I think Simmons really, at this stage of his career, represents just the other end of the spectrum where he was pretty shaken, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, at, le- at least as a scorer, for sure, right? I think that's, you know, that's, that's where I would kind of you know, point to a... Like I, like, I think, you know, he, and he talked about kind of the free throws being you know, a mental aspect, but there's just a level of, he's always been someone in the NBA where you wish he was a little more confident, not com- aggressive, but there was just a level of passiveness so prevalent in this game down the stretch of that series um, as a scorer. And, and there, and even kind of, that always is kind of prevalent in his, his offensive game to a, to a point that it shouldn't be. And it's, it's just so, so interesting. Yeah. I agree that, you know, I, like I, I try not to kind of get into the, the intangible aspects of those things, but but just the way Ben played down the stretch of that series against the Hawks showed just a certain level of passivity that I think did stem from, you know, a lack of belief in his own abilities to score. And, and again, I, I don't want to read too much into that because I just don't know those side of things and, and whatnot. But um, Ricky, I really appreciate you coming on kind of talking both the Bulls side of things and your impressions of, of Ben you know, and his development over the last nearly decade, which is, which is wild to think about the fact that you've been watching this guy who's only 24 for almost a decade now, seven or eight years, um, just kind of how things go when these mega stars, you know, are kind of thrust in the spotlight so early. But um, anything you want to add about either the Levine side of things or the Ben Simmons development side of things before I before I let you go and let you give yourself a little plug with your work and whatnot? Yeah, I mean, it's not a positive note to end on. But what I was going to say is that you know we've been talking about Simmons from an early age and his you know development until now. I would say a similar idea from you know that entire time is that he's always sort of left you want, wanting more mm-hmm. and the question is is that a problem with ben simmons or is that a problem with us you know what i mean it's like because yeah. of his high speed and ball handling you could just see him being something that is more dominant than what he is today but he's pretty damn good today mm-hmm. and i think that you know if the sixers trade him what they get back is not, you know, they're going to be at a talent deficit from what they were before because, uh, you know, Simmons is that talented. And even with all his shortcomings, there's just not a ton of guys in the league that can uh, provide just an overall talent level that Ben Simmons has. So uh, it's sort of unfortunate that his career has hit this low point. But, uh, you know, as long as he can get his head right, regain his confidence, uh, you know, and more importantly, like figure out better ways to be used by the coaching staff, uh, figure out maybe a supporting cast that, you know, I, I read your thing and the, and I totally agreed with it, that, you know, the Sim- the Sixers have put Simmons in a relatively good ecosystem to succeed, but sometimes it's just, you know, small changes and mm-hmm. 
we blamed Brett Brown. Now we're blaming Doc Rivers. Uh, and I still think there is some truth to that, even though the flip yeah. side would just be to blame Simmons. So uh, it's interesting. I uh, I hope the best for Simmons. I still think he's a really good young player. And it's the, mo- it's the most fascinating thing in the league this offseason is what happens to Ben Simmons because it's going to be very, very difficult for the Sixers to pull off a trade. I don't think a deal with the Bulls for Zach Levine is going to be on the table. But if mm-hmm. I'm a Sixers fan, I would trust that Maury's going to do what's in the best interest of the team. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I, I agree that I think, you know, whether it's necessarily on court stuff that is maybe hampering Ben in Philadelphia, I think it, I think it would behoove both sides to maybe have a fresh start. And, and like I tried to make clear in that piece, like I think he could take a leap somewhere else. I just don't think other than maybe the optimal situation, it would largely be tied to, you know, on court schematics or personnel. But, but I, but I agree that I, I, he's still a very good player. Um, you know, guys are never, you know, in all things in life, really, you're never as good as your highest points, you're never as bad as your lowest points. Um, and Ben, for all his struggles in this round, is still a tremendously good player, um, just with some flaws that are, you know, self-inflicted. But I think at the same time, you can correct those. But, Ricky, once again, I appreciate you coming on. Um, where can people read your work? Where can they listen to your, your Bulls content? Where can they follow you? Give yourself a little uh, shout out here. Sure. I got a Bulls podcast called Cash Considerations, which you can check out. That's on the Blue Iron Network. Uh, you can find all of my writing at SBNation.com. I published a 5,000-word mock draft uh, earlier this week after the lottery announced, after the lottery results were announced where I just kind of gave my thoughts on every player and extended blurb. So you can check that out if you're looking for a mock draft. I thought that uh, it got tough to do after you get outside of the top four. I, I put Scotty Barnes 5, and the mock draft kind of took off from there because <laughs> – uh, there's not a lot of consensus, I think, outside of the top four. So you can check that out. I'm going to cover the Combine today. So I'm going to run to the south side of the city and uh, go check out the Combine. That'll be fun to do. Lots of draft coverage, writing NBA takes on SBNation.com as well on the NBA page. So uh, you can find all my stuff there. And at Twitter, um, at SBN underscore Ricky. Awesome. Appreciate it, Ricky. For everyone listening, I'll be back on Saturday with a Another potential trade shooter. I won't spoil it yet because I don't actually know who that will be, which team. Um, but we'll be back on Saturday. Uh, until then, stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe. I will talk to all of you again soon.